Well, we, <clears throat> we have been uh, waiting all year, all month, for this time of season, this time, this day, this Christmas, Christmas Eve. You know, we've done our shopping, we've baked our cookies, we've planned our events, and it's here. We're, we're, we're at Christmas. We're at Christmas Eve. And, and something I forgot to mention at the, uh, in announcements is tonight at around 11 o'clock, uh, a number of us are going to gather here. And, uh, and we're going to ring the bell at midnight. Apparently, it's been a tradition for a little while now. And uh, I think it's a beautiful tradition at midnight. We will ring the bell, I don't know how many times, hopefully, you know, maybe 15, 20. You know, we'll just keep going, celebrating the birth of Christ. And it's here. We're, we're here to, to celebrate the, the birth of the Savior. It's an exciting time of year. Uh, uh, anybody that knows me knows that I love this time of year, not just because of the celebration, but because of, of who we're celebrating. The Christmas story has, has been around a long time and, and, you know, obviously a few thousand years old. But, but you know what? It actually goes even further than that. It, it goes a few hundred years before even the birth of Christ in the Old Testament. The story is there. One to Old Testament prophecy over another is a promising of a Messiah coming. To, to, to earth, a, a Messiah coming to bring salvation to his people. The prophet Isaiah writing there, 600 years before the birth of Christ, you know, 600 years before Christ, prophesies this amazing story of this, this birth. Across centuries, we, we hear this, this amazingly accurate picture of the birth of the Savior. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10 through 14, It'll be up on the screen. Read with me. It says, Later the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Make it as difficult as you want, as high as heaven, or as deep as the place of the dead. But the king refused. No, he said, I will not test the Lord like that. Then Isaiah said, Listen well, you royal family of David. Isn't it enough to exhaust the human, isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? You, must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? All right then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Before we look at the, the circumstances of this promise, and this was written in Isaiah 600 years before the birth of the Christ, and before we look into this, this story, this promise, we should look into the circumstances around it a little bit and look at the couple key characters. And one of them is Isaiah himself. Isaiah was a great prophet. He, was, he, he had an experience, a personal experience with God, and his sins were forgiven, and God took him and used him for a mission. And his mission was to go confront this king and to minister to him. And the second person we want to look at is King Ahaz himself. This guy, in, in all serious terms, I mean, he was a bad guy. This guy is like the baddest guy. He was considered the epitome of evil of the day. And during those eras and that time, you know, that was, the evil that was going on during then was nothing compared to what we've seen uh, or, or is, is horrible, even in today's standards. 
This guy went, went on, he was a king of Judah, and his father and grandfather were righteous men, and they loved the Lord. And he was part of the king, king David's family and lineage. And he was this, this wretched guy who desecrated the, the temple. And he also sacrificed his own kids, and he, and he sacrificed his own children. But he had a big problem. He, he was faced with this problem during this time, and the kingdom of Israel and Aram were getting ready to attack, and he was pretty much on the short end of the stake. He was not going to win this battle. See, God is always taking care of the lineage of King David. So here, King David was a man who was noted for being a man over after God's own heart. He was faithful to God. And Ahaz was part of that family tree, and God always, always took care of the David's lineage. And God sent Isaiah to Ahaz to send him a message to say, look, man, you're, you're, you're wicked. You need to stop this. And he goes and asks him, says, you know what? Here's a, God will give you a sign. God will give you victory and even allow you to choose a sign to show that victory. And, and the sign of choosing, God could, could have, by the power of God's hand, he could have won the victory of this battle. The sign could have been the, the timeless proof of God's faithfulness to this, this lineage of David. And as you read in verse 14, we find ourselves seeing something that we didn't see before. A, a promise. See, he, he said, you know, I will, I will bless you and I will, I will take care of you and I'll show you this sign. And he turns around and he says, no, I will not do that. He refused to put God to the test. And we realized that, that the sign would eventually come from God. And the sign, he said, okay, so God says, well, I will give you a sign, and here's the sign. The sign is that a woman will be pregnant as a virgin. And this sign would, would be a kind of sign and a promise that man couldn't make, but something beyond our capabilities. A sign of God's choosing could only happen with the power of God's hand. This sign could be endless proof of God's faithfulness. And as we read on to verse 14, it says that a virgin would conceive a special child. And because she was a virgin, man could not take any credit for this. This sign would be miraculous. And God's promise was predicted. However, God didn't just stop there. He didn't just say something and then just let it go. He didn't just say that this is what's going to happen and just let it go. He took that promise a step further later on. The, the, the virgin would not only conceive, because that's just one step. That's one miracle, isn't it? A virgin conceiving, isn't that a miracle in itself? But what about her actually going, giving birth to a son? Isn't that a miracle? She went full term. She didn't just have a baby, but she had a son. And not only did she have a son, they called him Emmanuel. It wasn't just a name, it was a promise. This child would restore a broken relationship between God and his people. This curse that happened in the Garden of Eden would be broken because of what God has done. Because God would be with us. You see, we couldn't come to God on our own doing. We can't come to God. We can't restore that relationship without Him taking that, initi that, that first step toward that relationship. 
See, we're still in a, a promised stage. See, we're not good enough to, to do that. We're not good enough to, to restore that relationship. And we're still in that promised stage. That promise is only as good as the promise maker. So if, Jesus, if God makes this promise that, that there's going to be this, this coming birth and this restoration, then we've got to look at the promise maker and say, okay, well, what's, did he fulfill that? And you skip forward to Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 33. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Did you look at that? Did you see that, that, that prophecy, that, that story, that promise from Isaiah chapter 7 that we just started reading? And there was a son, a virgin, would give birth to a son. And now fast forward 600 years later, here it is in, in Luke chapter 1, the same thing. See, God foretold these events hundreds of years apart. And, and here it is. Could we expect anything else from God? But we have a little problem here. Mary was engaged to Joseph. How is she going to explain that? How is she going to explain this, this new pregnancy? Not a problem, because God had a word for Joseph himself also. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 23, it says, As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph... Son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred, fulfilling the Lord's message through the prophet. And take a close look at this verse in verse 23. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, and she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Just, as, just in case anyone forgot the initial response, the angel reminded him of it. He, he'd be just, he wanted to remind him of that prophecy from years before. God is the ultimate promise keeper. God was, has always used signs and promises to keep the, or get the attention and deliver his message. He's used it all through history. Signs and promises. There's hundreds and hundreds of promises that he's made and he has fulfilled them. God has always used these signs to get the attention and deliver his message to his people. In the birth of Christ, we have a sign, a promise, a prophecy from God. We, we have this promise and prophecy that teaches us a lot about God and, and his character and who he is. So what can we learn from this? We see this, this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7. We know the story of the virgin birth, but what can we learn from this? What can we take away from these, this comparison? What is the birth of Christ, the birth of Jesus, a sign of? 
Well, first of all, it demonstrates God's power. The birth of Jesus is not a normal birth. It's a supernatural birth. He told us that it was, that it was a virgin who would be conceived by the Holy Spirit. This birth of Jesus was a miraculous event unlike anything else in history. In celebrating Christmas, we celebrate the fulfillment of this promise, a fulfillment of this, this event that God became man. That is a miracle in itself. Jesus, being God in the flesh, came and dwelt with, among us, being born of a virgin. And we see that in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, made it very clear that Isaiah 7, it had its ultimate fulfillment in its person, Jesus Christ. Not only does it show God's power, but it also demonstrates his love. Isaiah says that he is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. It is a promise that God himself will appear in human form. You may remember from the Old Testament stories where God appeared as a person to different people. God walked in the Garden of Eden. He walked around with, with Adam and Eve. You might know the story of Abraham where he met God as a weary traveler. Or what about when uh, God actually was walking around as a person? So what's different between Jesus and him? The difference is, is that Jesus became an actual person. An actual human person. In the Old Testament, God took on human form, but in Jesus, he became a person. Theologically speaking, it's called the incarnation, where God actually became man. Everyone who has exposure to the Bible or, or has been around church at all knows that story of the John 3.16, where for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It was because of this great love for God's mankind, or for, for mankind, that he sacrificed and he brought Jesus to earth. He was willing to allow his son to die on the cross and come to earth and take human form to pay for our sins. The Apostle Paul tells a story from a viewpoint of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. It says, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. A criminal's death on the cross. James Boyce, who's a, a great theologian, writes the following. Jesus endured a human birth to give us a, or give us a new spiritual birth. He occupied a stable that we might occupy a mansion. He had an earthly mother so that we might have a heavenly father. He became subject so that we might be free. He left his glory to give us glory. He was poor that we might be rich. He was welcomed by shepherds at his birth, whereas we, at our birth, are welcomed by angels. He was haunted by Herod that we might be delivered from the grasp of Satan. That is the great paradox of the, of the Christmas story. It is that which makes it irresistibly attractive. It is the reversal of roles that at God's cost for our benefit. That's love. 
God's sacrifice for us. Not only does God show his love, but he also shows us his faithfulness. Charles Ryrie, he's another theologian, says this, according to the laws of chance, it would require 200 billion earths populated by or with 4 billion people each to come up with one person whose life could fulfill 100 accurate prophecies without any errors in sequence. Yet the Scriptures record not 100, but over 300 that were fulfilled in Christ's first coming alone. Think about that. 4 billion earths, or uh, 2 billion earths with 4 billion people on each one. And that's what it would take to have one person fulfill 100 prophecies. In his book, Science Speaks, Peter Stoner applies modern science to probability to just eight prophecies regarding, regarding Christ. Eight. He says that chance, uh, the chance that any one man might have fulfilled all eight prophecies is one to the 17th. That would be one and 100 quadrillion. Look at, those, look at those zeros. That's one in all of that. That's the, the probability of somebody doing that. You math people probably know that. That's a big number. He goes on to suggest that we take 10 to the 17th silver dollars. Okay? Pay attention to this. We take 10 to the 17th silver dollars and lay them face down on, ten, on Texas. Face down. We will cover the, all of the state two feet deep. Now mark one of those silver dollars, stir up the whole pile, blindfold a man, and tell him to travel as far as he wants to go and find that marked coin. And he has to pick up that one. What chance would he have of getting it the right one? What, what chance do you think he has of getting the right one? He concludes it's just the same chance that the prophets would have of writing those eight prophecies and have them all come true in any one man, providing they wrote it with their own wisdom. See, when we talk about prophecy and what so many people think of is, is we, sometimes people think that, that it was written after the fact. But we have proof, we have evidences that the book of Isaiah, we have, actually Isaiah is one of the oldest books of the Bible that we have original copies of. Or, or good copies of. And it's over 500 B.C. We have copies of the book of Isaiah from going back from 500 B.C. Now, it was written around 6 to 7, actually around 700 B.C. And so, all these years, and we, we found them in 1948, the, the, uh, the caves in Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found Isaiah. And we compared them to the other ones we had, which were around uh, 100 A.D. I think the oldest one we had at the time was around 200 B.C., and we compared them, and guess what? They were 100% accurate, with the exception of a, what they call a dot and tittle, which is a Hebrew mark, a decimal point. That's how accurate this stuff is. And, and the, these prophecies coming together, and they're told hundreds of years later, the probability of that happening. See, over 300 separate prophecies concerning the coming Messiah give exquisite detail of the birth of Christ. 
One of those prophecies is in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Here, Micah told exactly where Christ would be born. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. So this, this, this verse begins with the word, but... And it's an introduction to something new and something grand, and it's, and it's about to enter human history. And there's a couple of things I want to point out of this. It says, a ruler from Israel whose origins are distant past. So he's talking about in the future, or, or uh, somebody's going to come, a ruler of Israel, but he's actually from the past. That's God. And he's going to come fr- to you on my behalf. See, this verse begins with the word bud, and it's an introduction to something new, something grand that is about to enter human history. But in surprise, an origin of this grand new work is not in one of the world's capitals. It's not even Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem. We all know about the town of Bethlehem, and we, we, hear, it, we hear the name of Bethlehem. We hear it in the stories. We sing songs about Bethlehem. There's a popular song. I think, didn't we sing it today? Uh, oh, little town of Bethlehem. Or we've seen it recently. See, most of us have heard about this town, and in, we've, we've heard it ever since we were old enough to pay attention to Christmas songs. We've, we know this story. But 2,000 years ago, Bethlehem was nothing. See, if, it's kind of like me. I, I grew up in a small town called Santee. Let me show a hand, seriously. Show, raise your hand if you know where Santee, California is. See, nobody... Oh, my wife does. Surprise. Nobody knows where that is. Now, what if I turn around and said, how many, show your hands, please, really show your hands. Do you know where San Diego, California is? Raise your hand. Everybody knows where that is. See, Bethlehem was like Santee. See, I grew up in San Diego. Now, if I was to say San Diego, you're like, oh, yeah, I know San Diego. Beaches and down by Mexico, California, surfers. But if I say CNT, none of you knew who, where that was. That's what Bethlehem was. Bethlehem was basically nothing. It was a small little hick town that nothing came out of. See, 2,000 years ago, it was not a well-known place. And if I was to say CNT, like if we were having a conversation, I'd say, hey, you know, I'm from CNT. You'd probably say, where's that? So I'd turn around and I'd say, well, I'm from San Diego. And you'd say, oh, okay. I know what that is. So, so when, when we look at that word, Bethlehem Ephrath, that's referring to basically Bethlehem by Jerusalem. So in English, it would be Santee by San Diego. So that would people would know it. That's the only way they even knew where the town was, is those happened to be near Jerusalem. And it was this obscure little country town, so obscure that, that he has to tell us that he, where he's talking about. He has to tell us that it's, Bethlehem by Jerusalem. Micah, pro- Micah proclaimed that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, but a week before Christ's birth, Mary was still in Nazareth. Eighty miles from Bethlehem, in a day where everybody walked everywhere, that was a long way. Average person walks about three miles an hour. These caravans, we talked about this the other week, the caravans would run about 20 miles a day. Took about four days to get through from Nazareth to Bethlehem. 
But God was in control and he took care of that. Around that time, she was in one town. How was she going to know to be in this other? God was in control. Caesar Augustus called for a census. You think that was just coincidence or, or did God be in, intervene in there? Did God take care of that? So then they had to go and register to their family roots when both of them were in the family. Both Mary and Joseph were part of the family of David, which was in Bethlehem. So Mary and, David, uh, Mary and Joseph, at that right time, made a four-day journey. And Bethlehem was, to the world, a small, insignificant village full of blue-collar workers and nothing special. But Bethlehem was significant, and the thing that made it special the reason we still sing about it today is because Jesus Christ was born there. That's why we sing songs about it. God, the Son, became the God-man and he was born to the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem of Judah, Judea. So let's take this story and let's make it personal. Let's make this message personal. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Therefore, the Lord him, Himself will give you a sign. So make this personal. I want you to look at a couple truths in closing. First and foremost, God is always faithful to His Word. When we, when we think of promising, promises and the verses, when we go through hard times and we look at God's Word and we look at these promises, we have to remember that He's always faithful to His Word. He is always true to his word. You can be assured that those promises made by God will be fulfilled. We see him in the past, and we can count on him in the future. And the second is that Jesus was God coming to you as a man. So you couldn't save yourself. We couldn't do anything for ourselves, but God loved you so much that he came to you. Jesus came to you free, to free you from sin. The gift that God gave you during the Christmas time was salvation. This is a personal gift for you. And that Hebrew word, you, in Isaiah chapter, or chapter 7 is plural, and it means everyone. In announcing the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of the great joy that will be for all the people. So when we go into this Christmas season, we go into this, this Christmas evening and Christmas day, let us remember the salvation that comes to all of us through Jesus Christ. God loves you so much that he brought his, his child in a stable for us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for all the love that you bring to us and the, the fact that you sent Jesus to us. Thank you so much for, for all of that, Lord. Thank you for giving us a Savior. Not just uh, anybody, just a, a Savior that, that came and died on the cross for us so we could have a life with God. Father God, thank you for everybody here and, and we just bless the people that couldn't make it tonight and, and as we celebrate this holiday. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this time, now this time of the service. Normally we do an altar call and all this other stuff, but we're going to do our candlelight part. And what I was hoping to do, and since there's uh, plenty of us, I was hoping that we could all stand up and gather into a circle around, I would say, this side here.
and, uh, and we'll light candles, and then we'll sing our last few songs. If you'd all please rise.